Production Talk podcast with me, Jan of mixartist.com.au. In this podcast series, we celebrate the modern way of producing music. We want to talk about all things related to songwriting, recording at home and music production. So if you produce your music at home, this is the place to be. Please subscribe and recommend this podcast to all your friends. This is the Production Talk Podcast Episode 3. Welcome back to the Production Talk Podcast. It's great to have you on board today. And thank you for joining me again. Uh, today is a special day. It's the first interview uh, this time with my dear friend, Mr. Marky Power, who I've known for many years and um, who I really value as a phenomenal reggae bass player and uh, dub artist. So without further ado, let's jump straight into our interview with Marky Power. Uh, thanks, Jan. It's, it's great to be here and great to be involved in the project. Yeah, um, I was born in Europe and emigrated to Australia, and I really thank my parents for having a very varied music collection. Dad said he used to play me Bob Marley when I was in the womb. So I think that sort of oh, nice. had a... Uh, That's some good upbringing. <laughs> yeah, well, he just had a really good vinyl collection. It was You know, as a child, spent many hours looking through those, those covers, just reading all the information about where they were recorded and different, you know, album covers have got so much yeah. fodder in there for, for reading. Oh, yeah. I, I used to study album covers and you know, vinyl covers for, for hours. Yeah. That's a great thing to do. It's like a good okay. book. So reggae was really early in your life. Your parents helped you to... Yeah, mum used to go to the Blue Beat Clubs in London, which is what Scar was called, I guess, in, in the early days of London. It's sort of Calypso mm. music is what they called it, Calypso Blue Beat. And I don't know, I've had that sort of English sort of Scar reggae tip to most of my things. I sort of love madness and, you know, all those sort of Scar bands of the 80s that sort of sort of up-tempo stuff with a you know a bit of Cockney Ian Jury thrown in there for, for rhyme and that sort of thing. Nice, nice. And how old were you when you when you picked up an instrument for the first time? Did you start with um, with the bass or what was your first instrument? I started on piano, actually. Um, piano. Yeah, as an, I hated it. <laughs> I was forced to play piano and then I moved on to violin for a few years and then I was really into heavy metal as a teenager and hip-hop and that sort of stuff and Everybody was, we were all playing in bands and everybody played guitar. So there were like six guitarists and I just thought, you know, I should play bass. At least I'll get a gig and be able to play if yeah. um, I've got an instrument. So that sort of bore my love of bass in that sense. Okay. And, and how old were you when you picked up the bass? I uh, was 13 when I first started playing bass. Yeah. 13. Yeah. It was a hard slog, you know, you just, you hear all this amazing music and you're a young musician and you, you want to emulate those sounds, but what you're doing sounds nothing like that. And so you've got a lot of mm. a long road of practice and lots of hours sitting in the bedroom with a, a metronome or practicing, get up to speed and get race fit and make your body work the way you want it to work. Yeah, right. And uh, who are your, your uh, most influential artists nowadays? Who, who are your heroes in the reggae world? Uh, I've always loved singing bass players. I just think it's sort of marvellous <sighs> that we can do both of those things. You know, Sting's always been a big hero, Paul McCartney, the sort of classics of those things. But I saw the Whalers when I was about 17 uh, in Canberra at the ANU Refectory. Uh, it was Majestic Warriors tour, I think it was. Junior Marvin was singing nice. uh, up the front row, sitting there watching Family Man playing bass. It was a life-changing experience just to hear that music and then wonder 
how can he play that? Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah, I've seen him live. It's just jaw dropping. Yeah. Bass guitar mastery. Yeah, <laughs> can't do it any better. Yeah, what an influence. Yeah, well, you know, the ho- I think the band broke some strings or something, and then the rest of the band just dropped down to drum and bass, which was the highlight of my evening. Just watching watching those guys play. Yeah, right. And then you started your your own musical career, and you played in quite a few bands. I think the first time we met uh, was over ten years ago when you were playing for Firewalk. Is that right? Do I remember that correctly? Yeah, I think think so. Yeah, that's when we first that met in the studio there. Yeah, it was um, one of the many milestones in your musical career. Yeah, I've been a, been a reggae bass player for the last twenty five years of playing reggae when it wasn't cool, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. And uh, yeah, just to, to fill our listeners in there, we um, there's a little bit of a story there um, when uh, Firewalk <laughs> was uh, playing at my wedding, and you injured yourself. Oh yeah, I as think the I, bass player. A few of the bands know me <laughs> as uh, the most injured man in reggae. I've got that sort of term uh, <laughs> from a few few bands that for little mishaps that have happened to me. <laughs> But uh, yeah, at your wedding, I think we'd performed, and then I'd gone out to the car to unload some gear, and then the door slammed. And shut my hand in the door and sort of collapsed on my thumb and and I ended up ringing another band member and he came and rescued me and and then you guys took me to hospital that night on on your wedding it was sort of I nearly lost my thumb they said I would crushed all the nerves um, didn't actually cut them but yeah. it looked like Roadrunner cartoon you know when they sn- gets run over oh, it was just all yeah. flattened oh my god yeah it took me a few months of recovery and rehab to get get playing again because I lost the use of my thumb there for quite a few months. Well, that night was a bit of a blur for me, but I remember that you were on stage and playing that night, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, most definitely, playing my heart so out. So after Soundcheck, you went to hospital and then straight back and you played the gig. Yeah, yeah. With half a thumb. That's show business. <laughs> well, that's dedication, man. That's dedication. Amazing. Okay. What other um, bands have you been involved with? Um, I really got my reggae education with this Australian group called Earth Reggae. They were sort of a prolific touring reggae band in the 90s and they were sort of like a 10-piece roots reggae band that was pretty authentic in a sense. They were based on the Northern Rivers and they toured all over the place and I was got to be their bass player for about a seven-year period and it was truly an experience of just learning rudiments. The guy that ran the band would just sort of train you and just sort of and make sure you wouldn't overplay and he'd teach you all the rhythms, all the rudiments. So I learned all about basic sort of reggae stuff from that being in that band and that gave me the foundation for, for more reggae, I guess. I love that. You were taught not to overplay. Can you expand a bit on that? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's like it was pretty strict in that sense. The guy's name was Radical and uh, he'd just teach you. He'd say, no, this is a ragamuffin and he'd learn and he'd learn where the beat was and he'd do a song and it might go through three or four different Uh, rhythm rudiments, but it's the same song structure, but just playing it through different types of reggae feels. And so, yeah, he just teach us and sort of drum in, that into us about how to play the rhythms and play them properly, not overplay them. And then mm. I guess reggae is all about syncopation and then not overplaying. So yeah. it's, there's some parts of the whole in that music. So if you're overplaying, then you're not leaving room for the other people. And like good conversation, there has to be rises and falls and good dynamics and places where people are quiet and louder than others. That sums it up so well. So in, in many ways, it's also, it's mainly about the notes that you don't play. Yeah, I mean, I find that with drummers, when they hit this snare and then they'll, they'll leave it out and then you're just hanging on that snare for it to be happening again and it's almost like, you know, it's coming, but then 
if they pull it back and hold it, then you're just hanging there for that snare to happen again. I can really relate to that. It's building suspense. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, fantastic. I love that. Can you tell us about your, your bass rig? What are you playing at the moment? Um, I moved over to five-string bass about 20 years ago. Um, I play flat-wound strings, uh, generally give me a sort of a more rounder tone and less sort of top end, and they're easier on the fingers. Um, I play an Ampeg rig, which is an all-valve SVT. I've had that for 25 years, my bass rig. I'm sure it's uh, Beautiful. part of my hernia sort of problem because it weighs so much. Usually you have to get someone to help me lift it. I've noticed uh, quite a few of my other friend bass players have lighter bass rigs now and that seems to sort of be the way of the future, not carrying around these big heavy things. But, um, yeah, saying that, that's my, my touring rig and my recording rig. I sort of balance line out from the Ampeg and uh, sort of set and forget really. It's a really mm. great amp. Do you use any pedals? No. I'm pretty sort of uh, old school in that regard. Yeah, good. I have well, have in the past but sort of traditionally for the music that I record and play with it's – generally just straight bass. Mm, yeah, yeah. That makes just purity, yeah? just clean. Yeah, I just I fell in love with the valve sound and that's sort of love that sound. And can you tell us about the projects that you are currently involved with? I'm currently in talks with a Jamaican-Australian-based artist and dub poet Michael St. George. It's called the Song Poet Project. I'm collaborating on dub artistry and soundscaping within the suit of his works. The album's been recorded across three countries, being... Canada, Jamaica and Australia and includes Whoa. artists from Cat Empire, um, Ollie McGill and Julian Belbacher from Ochre. It's an interesting album. It's, oh, uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's sort of that's, it's also some phenomenal musicians, yeah. That's, I guess, sort of the true COVID thing that's happened with in the last few months where technology has allowed us to reach other people around the world. I mean, not just now, but sort of the emphasis on that has come to the forefront, I think. Yeah. Can you tell us more about how, how this practically works? You know, you've got musicians in different places all around the globe and, you know, uh, how do you practically work together? Well, I mean, that's the beauty of technology now. I think as a child and a teenager, I would only dream of those things being able to happen. But yeah, it's Pro Tools sort of expanded massively when it went to 10. And then the fact that you could have a sound card which wasn't dedicated to Pro Tools and didn't cost $50,000. So now the, we're just able to send files around the world to people, get them to record in their place and send them back, lined up, and collaborate like that. Okay, so you upload WAV files um, to somebody else and they download it and import it into their session and then lay something on top, or how do you practically... Yeah, that's pretty much it, you know. Yeah, you yeah, could. One of the latest albums I've been working on is for another guy, that's how that was recorded. The drums were recorded in Melbourne, the bass in Brisbane, the horns were in Darwin, and then the keys were, came from Perth. <laughs> like, wow, he said, yeah, my band's all over the place at the moment, but that's, that's the reality of what it is to record now. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And that's exactly why I wanted to launch this podcast, to just talk about this some more. Were any of these signals recorded in a, in a professional studio or all in, in home setups? A mixture of both. Mm -hmm. uh, major okay. Majority of the drums are recorded in studios. Yeah. And then some of the horns were definitely. But yeah, other, other things are just... You know, you can hear where they're recorded from the recording itself. But, yeah, truly it's come along in leaps and bounds and it's able to make great music happen, which is in this time of COVID we're feeling less connected and that's one way that we can work together to actually make music. Fantastic. Um, wh what does your home studio look like? Uh, my home studio, I'm mainly doing post-production stuff, not so much recording, it's too much overdubbing. I get stuff that's sent to me and then basically I have a small sound card basic rig, Mac, and then a whole lot of outboard gear. I 
I'm just trying to think how to phrase it because it's sort of my stuff that the dub work that I do on stage, I didn't want to be limited to the studio. And as we know, I started off mixing in the box like most of us do. And then the limitations from that tend to be that it looked like you're checking your emails on stage. Yeah, maybe you should just uh, fill our listeners in. Over the last couple of years, you've branched out and you've become a quite a, a, a sought-after live dub artist as well. So you've, you don't always play the bass anymore on stage. No? Sometimes you just do the dubs. Yeah, well, that's, that's something I've wanted to explore over the last few years, just sort of carving a neat little niche for myself yeah. doing that. I, I think I remember that, you know, we've always been into it, at least as long as I know you, but uh, just over the last few years, I've really seen you expand a lot and play live a lot and yeah, after I bring it to the stage. After I did my uni degree, it sort of gave me the confidence to do things that I would pay other people to do. I think that's yeah. sort of the beauty of that, investing in it. In yourself like that. Okay. And how does your dub rig look like? Uh, you said you have got a lot of output gear, analog gear. In this time, there's never been a, a better time to work with um, small producers of audio. You know, like in the past when stuff was made, there'd be a thousand units of a circuit board made or something. And so now you can speak to someone that's producing something and they, they can make you up a custom board or can build you something tailored to your needs. Yeah. So many amazing things out there. I tried to emulate a lot of the stuff which I used in the box, but then I wanted to play it on stage but and make it more tactile, sort of have more fun and, you know, jump around and to manipulate things and sort of be a part of the mix while it's happening and uh, sample the band while they're playing, get bits of them, then feed it back into the front of the house so that you create textured soundscapes sampling the band while they're playing. Beautiful. So you basically... Add the sound of the band or the dubby effects uh, in real time. Yeah. So you you don't rely on on a mix engineer to do you know the guesswork. Basically, a lot of them have no idea how to do it. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to sort of carve a niche there because I feel each song mm. needs a certain texture or a certain effect on it, and then especially wet vocals, uh, reggae drums, lots of delays, phases, and stuff on the snare, hi hats, that sort of thing. So just adding textures and. And uh, can you just talk us through your setup? So let's say, you know, we've got the band on stage and, and uh, do you then set up additional microphones or do you, you know, tap into the existing ones? Do you use a split for that? It's sort of, it was a steep learning curve. I went on tour with some bands over summer. We did, uh, I think it was nine weekends in a row of festivals all around Australia. And I had some of the most helpful engineers to some of the most unhelpful engineers um, <laughs> going around from unplugging all my stuff, just saying, no, you can't do that. And as soon as... Uh, pull out a little mixing desk on stage that was sort of like comparing penis sizes or something. Some engineers just get really upset. Yeah, yeah. well, so, um, live sound engineers are known to be the crankiest and grumpiest uh, profession of all. Yeah, so I sort of learned to deal with that and became mm. equipped with every bit of equipment that I'd need from having every sort of answer. So basically my setup is depending on the engineer. So if it's digital, I can ask for sends of certain things to be sent to me. But if that's yep. too much, then I just physically take my own sends on stage and I'll either take splits of the snare, splits of the main vocal, or I physically put my own microphones on there, depending on – I'm sort of equipped yeah. for most most situations live. And then I run that through a series of, of outboard gear. So I've got a, a Space Echo RE201. Beautiful. I've got the pedal version of that, which I find uh, most useful for a lot of things. I use that for a lot of, a lot of drums and a lot of delays. And then I've got a Mitron Biphaser. That was a piece of gear which is used by Lee Scratch Perry and then Stevie Wonder, Smashing Pumpkins. They're quite big, quite studio bound. They're not the best for moving around. So this Australian company mm. made a, a copy of that and I use that for phases and on the drums. 
And then uh, the other bit of gear that I've been using is this company out of out of Spain called Benny Dub. Great company there. I've got a couple of their units, their signal generators, their sirens, and their main delay unit I use for for vocals. It's got pole filters, sweeps, and that sort of thing, so you can really sort of tailor the delays and put them right where you want them in the mix. Ah, oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. So you've got your own little mixer. You've got uh, effect units attached. And then you just, you know, play the faders and aux sense as you feel. Yeah, I have it all, all hardwired. And then you basically feed um, only the effects back into the front of house or? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So I basic, basically just take splits of the, of the things that I want to affect and then I send that back to front of house. In okay. And, and what do you do for your personal monitoring on stage? Uh, generally. Do you usually work with a foldback or headphones or? Uh, definitely fold back. I find headphones yeah. a bit too isolating. You need to be able to feel the music you're creating in amongst what you're doing. Yeah, I find if you have it through fold back, you get a better general feel of, of how much level's there and how loud you want to push it, that sort of thing. That makes perfect sense. So you're working basically completely analog without any computer on stage. Yeah, that's correct. I, I did go down that road. I mean, I had logic running on stage, triggering samples and stuff from, from the computer, which was hidden underneath my dub desk. But I, yeah, I just... Computers crash. They just yeah. At the most <laughs> inopportune they times, do, you'll go they? to press something and mm. you know it won't work. So yeah. I thought you know there's limitations to all those things. But down the path of all the analog gear, actually, I just, it's really tactile. I've got my hands on all the time. I'm manipulating small sounds, and through that experience, I I basically hardwired all my gear into a rifle case. So it's. Uh, I come to stage, everything's hardwired. I only have two or three leads to plug in and then I'm, my setup time's down to about four or five minutes. Perfect. Um, instead of plugging things in and out all the time, that's when leads break, your power connectors go, all that sort of stuff. Yes. So, um, isolated power supply runs all the gear, so it's all, all good like that. And uh, Okay. And then you can probably just uh, take it to your home studio and plug it in into your computer and just do uh, some remix, you know, remixes and, and dub mixes with your gear? Yeah, that's, it's set up to me now. I just you can see on the camera, but yeah, my studio's here and all my dub gear's to the right there. That was sort of one of the ease about having it packed up and being able to have it mobile is that uh, I can just have it set up at home quite easily. And then I've got a couple of gigs this weekend on the dub rig, so it'd be quite easy to just pack everything up and move it out again. Won't have to unplug anything. Fantastic. Over COVID, I invested in all new leads and that sort of stuff. So That makes perfect sense. And can you tell us a little bit about your project, uh, Dubshack? What's happening with Dubshack at the moment? Uh, Dubshack um, did some recording with those guys a couple of years ago with a couple of new session players and um, released a single off that a couple of months ago. That, that's on Spotify and a couple of things like that. And mainly I've been doing remix work this year, Jan, getting stuck into an album for an Australian artist called Jesse Morris, which I'm pretty sure you're familiar with. Oh, yes, I am. <laughs> so during COVID, I spent eight weeks on his album doing all the post-production dubs and stuff. So that was a major undertaking. Yeah. Jesse Morris is a dear friend of ours and uh, we hope to get him onto the podcast at some stage. Nice. Hopefully sooner than later. So hopefully we can talk about that project then. Uh, but how is all of this coming together? Where's this album at? Um... I think you'll have to ask Jesse about that one. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, that makes perfect sense. And you basically did all the dubs for that album at home and, you know, was that also an online collaboration just like uh, the, the current work you're doing? Yeah. Yeah, I got sent all the stems from that and then in through my home studio and then I'm limited to what I can do as far as I've tried lots of different ways of, of dubbing, like in the box. That was sort of has its own benefits. And then yeah. 
the true tradition, which is running everything across your board and then having a two-track out and recording it. And that is very hit and miss for me, you know, sort of some things mm-hmm. work, some things don't, sometimes the levels are, are not good. So what works for me is I, I paint. So I, I go through and I pick an instrument out of, out of the song that I want to affect and I'll grab some bits of it and then I'll do a pass on another instrument and I'll do some on that. And I go through all the instruments that I feel in a mix that I will need. And then I delete all the dry tracks and I just use a lot of the wet tracks mm. and manipulate those in conjunction with the dry tracks. But it's sort of tend to find that you can get a lot more interesting things once you put songs through effects and delays and other sounds that you wouldn't think were there. Okay. And do you just follow your intuition when to open up, you know, the room shots and um, the reverb throws? Or do you follow? Do you follow? You know, musical patterns. Do you actually do it the same way every single time when you when you perform with the Jesse Morris band, or is each show completely different? Well, if I'm reinterpreting something, I sort of I generally for an artist, I have an open slather of what I can do, so they just say go for it, and I <laughs> I find that creative freedom is is a magic because I sort of can get in the zone and really try to find a new take that's a song to a new place or something that wouldn't actually we wouldn't have heard before. Nice, nice. That sounds really good. Say, um, since you're now in contact with a lot of musicians um, that all collaborate online, what do you find? What are the most common hiccups and issues people face? What are the difficulties? Uh, sample rates would probably be the biggest one. Yeah, right. Um, Who would have thought? <laughs> I you know, just got to pick the finer details on those ones. That's sort of got to, I mean, I made that mistake myself. That was part of my learning curve is recording things at the wrong sample rate, sending it to someone and... It's a good thing to learn that just a small oversight like that and what the problems that it can cause. Yeah. And uh, how do you tackle that? Do you just, you know, brief everybody at the beginning to, to use whatever sample rate you agree on? or? Yeah, I think clear communication is the key to that one. Just mm. having, a, having a good brief and making sure everyone understands what their requirements are of them and what the finished product yeah. that you need from them is. Yeah. And I noticed that depending on the door people use, the digital audio workstations, They all raise different degrees of awareness uh, with the users. So some are really in your face and won't let you pass in a dialogue window saying, make a decision here. Yep. And others are a bit more casual and you may not even realize what sample rate you're on. <laughs> is, is that also your experience? Um, I'm mainly working in Pro Tools. Uh, I do do yeah. a bit of sketching in Logic, but I find Pro Tools, my, that's my program that I might go to as far as Creatively, I use it a bit unorthodoxly to most people because I use it a bit like Logic where I just grab samples and throw them in at various spots just by eye, not by mm-hmm. not by grid or anything else. It's sort of by feel eye that, that should be a symbol about there or a special effect about here. I can physically drag and drop them around. Yeah, right. So you work off the grid. Yeah. I think, you know, sounds should be where they should be, not be just because the line's there. Fantastic. That makes perfect sense. Um Say, so what's your take? What are the advantages and pros and cons of recording with a click or without? Mm, yes. Well, some people can't play to a click. That's uh, yep. that's one that of happens. the sort of humannesses of it, I guess, the function of it. I mean, it depends how much time you've had in the experience. Some The daunting aspect of playing to a click can really throw some musicians, can really, um, yep. can really just... Mess with their hands. Yeah, just... So I guess you've got to explain really listen to the song and see what it does, get the musicians to play through it a few times and see whether it pushes or pulls because generally there's an, an actual breath to, to a song where a chorus might speed up just that tiny bit and then slow back down for the groove. And you've got to really identify whether or not that's a good function of the song or whether it's a, something that sort of wavers too much or 
it really really depends on if it suits the song, really. Yeah. Sometimes come across people who are, you know, just very strongly pro or con. Mm. And uh, I guess, you know, you've got a really good take on this, you know, just to see what's what's useful for, for the song, you know, if it works well, I mean, or not. There is that the end point where, you, you know, as a producer and engineer, you're thinking, you know, if I've got to cut this up and move it around or stretch it or that sort of thing, that doing stuff to a grid and a click is sort of essential. But, yeah. uh, I mean, that sort cool. of defeats a whole lot of electronic dance music. You find that it is so square, you know, there is no humanness to it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I guess that's why we all love reggae, yeah? Yeah. What better genre for, for human groove and feel than yeah. reggae? Mm. Okay, say, yeah, you've had your studio for a longer time and you, you know you've gone through a bit of formal education, but um, how distracting is it to operate a home studio while, you know, focusing on the performance at the same time? Does it take from playing the performance? You know, does it make a difference whether you just focus on playing the bass or your dubs and somebody else takes charge of all the engineering or having to do all of this by yourself? Does does it take from from the experience and from the performance? I think it's, um, you have to wear two hats. I mean, I think our brains aren't wired for that type of experience. You, like you're in a creative brainwave state, you're in the space, you're painting, you're creative, but that sort of brainwave that you need to be decisive, it's a total opposite to where you are you're in the creative state. So I think you need to have that object- objectivity in it at a later stage, either the next morning or you have defined times for when you have creative times and then being objective because it's really hard to switch. But, I mean, I find that for myself as a creative individual, that's what works for me because mm. okay. or having a person there which which serves that role to be objective when you're in a creative space because otherwise it's it's a bit hard to be objective, I'd say. Yeah, yeah right. And uh, the other musicians that you work with, do they have similar experiences? You know, the takes that they return to you, do you feel like, yeah, that's really good heartfelt music or do you feel that the mind was wandering off to driver issues and uh, shortcuts and all the things we don't really want to think about when we make music? For me, like, dub is a deconstructed song. It's the basic element for me. Like, you strip something down to its individual elements and then start to dub from there. And mm. if the performances aren't good, the whole song falls apart. Yeah, yeah, right. Might be a wobbly keyboard line there or a late drum hit. And once you strip things back and things aren't masking each other, then you can really hear the performance. Um, Musicians-wise, I think most musicians I work with are pretty self-calibrating. They come out of the session and then be able to sort of have that objective decision. I think deadlines are the most important things for studios. You've got to work to a deadline, otherwise things just get too long-winded. Oh, yeah, I can relate to that. I've been involved in production where we had too much time and I ended up overthinking stuff. Deadlines are good. They're very healthy in some regards. Yeah. I speak to people who've been working on their solo albums for six years or something and it's, um, it's a long time to be involved in a project and, and still maintain that sort of level of, of enthusiasm, I guess. And, yeah. And the ability well to said. see an endpoint, I guess. Well said. So you said that you're actually working with an older computer. Can you give us a, a rough idea of what generation that is? And are you happy to share what interface you're using? I'm saving for a UAD, <laughs> like we all are. Um, yeah, I'm basically running an older MacBook Pro with uh, Firewire and Thunderbolt out. And I'm running an M-Audio interface and a Soundcraft 16-channel desk. Nice. And so... Most of the stuff that comes to me is recorded in bigger studios. And so there are limitations to what I can do. I was touching on that before when I was talking about how I dub in the sense of painting because I'm limited to two inputs on my sound card. I've got eight outs, which means I tried dubbing across the board with eight outs and 
doing it that way. Yeah, right. So you send eight individual signals to your to your mixer, yep. but you need to basically return just a stereo signal or two mono signals. Yeah, I've tried, you know, we were discussing the ways of, of creating dub music in that sense. So one being in the box where everything's inside the computer. Then I tried another way, which was to split all the instruments that were inside the DAW across the desk and then dub them that way. And then how I mainly do it is before I was saying I pick the main instruments which I want to create from and then I'll do passes and then I'll, I'll edit yeah. those passes and then make a, a more sort of just an edited version of that. Okay. Looks like you've got it all worked out. So, you know, uh, you're making some phenomenal music with, uh, you know, some some older gear, if I see that correctly. Um, and yeah. it's not I mean, the latest and the greatest and... Uh, you know your performance speaks for itself, and even you know older, older gear uh, is not a showstopper at all. Well, I mean, I've had that discussion amongst many of us audiophiles in the sense of if you're always chasing, you know, there's always that dilemma of chasing the latest greatest thing and the latest greatest thing. And what came to my system was I'm running Waves plugins, I'm running Pro Tools, and it came to the point where my operating system. If I upgraded something, then I lose all my plugins. I've got it at the point now where it's still running Pro Tools 10. Everything's working, nothing crashes, yeah. and it works for me. Beautiful. That's the number one rule, yeah? Once you've got a running system, just don't touch it. <laughs> Leave it alone. Don't upgrade. Yeah, I mean, so I'm limited by, by what I have, but I'm trying to use it to the best of my ability. I looked upon all my inspiration for the old greats from Jamaica, and they're working on four tracks and eight tracks, that sort of thing, mm. and phenomenal music that was created from the technology that they had. So I'm trying to use what I have to do, do what I can. Yeah, I mean, at a later stage, I'll update to more gear and, and a bigger desk, but at the moment, yeah, it works for me. It's fantastic. Well, I think limitations have something really healthy for creative, you know, workflows and troubleshooting and thinking and, you know, thinking outside the box can be something, you know, really helpful. Yeah, well, I guess one of the limitations of my system being older is that now with files getting bigger, like a 96K file, my system just sort of goes, has a bit of a bit of a choke, so I need more RAM and that sort of stuff. But um, yeah. I just try to look for creative solutions around that to still work the way I work. Yeah, I see that. I see that. Say, have you got any advice for uh, musicians who struggle producing themselves at home? You know, people who are maybe just lost in this entire new world of recording and microphones and room acoustics. What are the things you would recommend to prioritize on and what are the things that are heavily debated but maybe not that, in not that important? What, what is your take on that? I reckon a good pair of headphones is a worthy investment for any studio. Amen, brother. Because, uh, you know, if you've got studio monitors, it's fine. You can spend anywhere from $500 to $50,000 on studio monitors, but then you've got to treat your room. So you're not getting a true sort of indication of what your sound is. If Even if you spend mega bucks on mega speakers, a good pair of headphones is um, a worthy addition and it will give you a... Um, do, do you mind sharing with us uh, which, which set of uh, cans you're using there? Uh, these ones, uh, these are not what I want to talk about online. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you I, don't have to. You no. can cut that out. Yeah. yeah. But I uh, know if I was, it'd be the HD 700s. Just got a pair of AKGs on my head at the moment. So Yeah, nice. I've had AKGs and, you know, I own Sennheisers and there's so many great models around. And, you know, they all sound different, but I realized that over time my ears somehow bend themselves around it. They wrap themselves around it and that becomes the new normal. So... I guess I learned to overcome the sound differences. Yeah. The other thing would be to start with a good drum beat, I guess. That's essential for all good reggae music. 
is good recorded drums. I think your body can't lie to you. Um, when you hear a good drum beat, your body just starts moving. That's uncontrollably telling the body that it's a, a good drum beat or one you can use. Yeah, nice one. Have you got any favorite drum beats? The personal favorites? Personal favorites. Oh, we all love a good steppers or a one drop. Um, lots of space in those sort of rhythms. Yeah. I've been really impressed of late with the new stuff coming out of Jamaica, like Lila Ike, uh, Chronics, and those sort of guys. They're using a mixture of electronic drums live. So they'll, they'll use a, a live kick, but then they'll have a rolling pad when the, the drummer's playing their sort of electronic sounds as a live drummer. It's new sort of sound coming out of Jamaica. I'm re really enjoying that sort of stuff, pushing the boundaries a bit as far as getting more of a hip hop sound to the drums. What are the next couple of weeks going to bring for you? What are you working on? Have you got any gigs planned and, you know, any new gigs happening at the moment? Yeah, it's really exciting. I've got three gigs this weekend. It's uh, it's uh, post-COVID. We're coming out of it. So we're happy. I've got a house concert on Saturday night, which is a nice little intimate thing with uh, the Jesse Morris band. We're playing down in Coffs Harbour area. And then on the Sunday and then the Sunday morning and then the Sunday evening, we've got a couple of shows in the Coffs area also. So I'll be on the on the live dub rig. Beautiful. Yeah, looking forward to that. So that's in, in Coffs Harbour, which is the, the Australian East Coast. So any any listeners in that same area? Maybe stop by. Yeah, thanks, Jan. Often called the Banana Coast, this area. Yeah, nice. So if people want to find out more about you, is there a place online where they could go to listen to your music and find out more about you? Uh, yeah, Dub Shack's uh, on Spotify. And then I've got a playlist of some of my dubs on, on SoundCloud. You can find me there under Dub Shack, Marky Power. Are you on Facebook? Have, have you got a website? Uh, I've got personal pages on on Facebook under Marky Power, Dub Engineer. Would you mind if we add links to that in, in the show notes? Of course. Please, please feel free. <laughs> Then we'll just make this public so everybody can check out your work. Thanks, Jan. Appreciate it. Marky, thank you so much for, for making the time today. And uh, as uh, literally the first interview I'm doing, which is phenomenal, and uh, hopefully not the last, hopefully we can speak again uh, in the future. Always great to chat with you. Okay, Marky, thank you so much. Cheers. So this was our first interview of this podcast series with Mr. Marky Power of Dubshag. Thank you so much, Marky. It was great to have you on board. So thank you very much for listening and I hope you enjoyed this interview. I have many more interviews planned for the future, so please stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast series and I would really love if you could please leave a five-star review for me in your favorite podcast app. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I hope to see you again in two weeks' time. In the meantime, please check out the show notes to find Dubshack on the internet. Uh, have a listen to Marky's Records, and if you ever need uh, a phenomenal uh, session musician for reggae bass or dub effects mixing, please reach out to Marky Power and say hi for me. It would be great if we could expand our music family and reach out to new people. That's what it's all about, keeping the community going. Big thanks to Naren of Alchemy Audio for helping with the editing of this episode. So thank you very much for today. I'm looking forward to speaking to you again in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening and bye for now.